Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Blue Lineage Podcast. Um, this will be the first episode we get into the timeline of Black American music as listed on the website. Um, as I said before in this episode, we'll be covering uh, some topics um, that kind of proceed the blues genre and kind of what led into the development um, and some of the social uh, historical issues or context um, that kind of shapes the, the genre. Um, as you'll notice um, in these early uh, these early musicians, W.C. Handy and Mommy Smith, um, they don't necessarily uh represent what um you might traditionally think of the blues um i kind of covered this last time um but it you know they're important as far as uh contributors to the blues genre and just the early um early black music especially uh commercially So just to start off, just to give a little background, um, I mean, I, I think it's pretty well known that um, you know the blues has uh, very strong roots to Africa, specifically West Africa, and um, some of the traditions and um, cultural aspects that were brought over to um, the Americas through uh, slave the slave trade um, specifically uh, in reference to the blues um, this the African slaves had uh, something called a field hauler and a field hauler was uh, essentially um, sort of a melodic tune um, or lyrics that an individual would be uh, singing or you know humming or whatnot uh, as they worked and um, it was definitely it was generally a solo thing um, you know just improvised as they went along and um, of course over time it's kind of built up and you know eventually that tune or that musical melodic um, song or series of notes might become you know be passed along to uh, other people and they might be able to kind of sing along with you or add to it or you know kind of talk back you know it might just be some kind of like almost conversational in some ways but the main thing uh differential is there were also work songs which um work songs were more of a uh a song that had that uh call and response format um that eventually uh shaped later gospel music you know where someone kind of leads in a phrase and then the uh, audience or the participants uh, call it back, and that's just kind of how you know you just keep moving through it that way. And that was that was separate. The field field holler was more individualized, and that's why it's a little bit more connected to what um, the blues became, um, just because you know it, it had that individual and kind of grit and work, um, blue collar, uh, you know, struggle, um, and rooted in Africa. Um, sort of sound and um, 
there there are a lot of similarities. However, um, just as a lot, just similar to a lot of things that kind of predated um, that predated the nineteen thirties um, and forties. Uh, you know, there's just a a lack of documentation. So uh, you know, obviously the slaves were very limited in what they were able to record, you know, intentionally not educated. Um, and of course the culture, the American culture, white culture um, at the time, you know, were not was not necessarily interested in uh, what was going on with black people or the African slaves or just because, you know, there was outside of, you know, the work side of things, outside of entertainment side of things, you know, what they found entertaining or extracting, um, there was just not a whole lot of interest there. So everything is a little bit murky early on. And so pe- people, uh, it was a popular notion that field hollers, you know, led into the blues, but um, it's also very possible that field hollers and blues kind of developed um, concurrently and that uh, neither one necessarily preceded each other because uh, they do have similar structures and some of the earlier we know that blues was around around the same time and we know that field hollers as far as the early, first recordings were also around the same time and so before that it's kind of unknown but all this all this kind of comes together as far as the cultural um, the music development that kind of shifted from you know, African slaves and everything that was brought over that that way and started to build a sort of a, a black black American music identity kind of out of that, you know, struggle and uh, hardship, oppression, all of that, um, and kind of build this into something else. And so that's kind of the, the foundation of the sound. Um, and then we'll also cover a little bit about um, some of these cultural phenomena that happened that kind of spread, allow the music to spread and grow um, across the U.S. Um, so I think the first I'll cover uh, W.C. Handy, a first musician on the timeline, just because he gets into, his career kind of covers a pretty long span and kind of gets into some of the other terminology that we'll talk to on the timeline. Um, yeah. Okay, so W.C. Handy is um, an interesting individual because he was a well-trained musician, um, and he liked to refer to himself as the father of the blues, uh, which is pretty uh, controversial, but also I think, you know, also not, it's, it's not heavily disputed because even W.C. Handy, um, you know, was somebody who kind of said it, but to some degree knew like that was not maybe the case. Uh, but what he did do is he was the first um, individual to commercially record, to write and compose the song and to commercially record that song. Um, blues track, um, uh, and, you know, in music history is the first one to commercially record a, a blues track. Um, it was called the Memphis Blues. Um, and as I kind of noted briefly in the intro episode, that this sound was not necessarily uh, 
a sound that you associate with the blues. Um, he had a pretty big uh, backing in uh, ragtime and you know some of the other sounds that preceded um, the blues, as far as like uh, hymns, spirituals, ragtime. Um, you know, he he did play jazz later on down the line, which of course ragtime. Um, with blues influences kind of is what eventually became the jazz so you know that it, it he also contributed to that and it kind of makes sense his due to his sound because he was a well-trained musician he didn't necessarily um ever consider himself you know steep you know specifically a blues person he really saw the uh potential commercial appeal he you know became interested in it and then you know along with some other, like other musicians, you know, tried to record that and, you know, add that into the, the commercial popular music scene, which um, eventually did. I, you know, he did not have the first blues hit, but he's the one who put it out there, you know, put it out to the world commercially, you know, people would hear it and, you know, become a little bit more interested in it and uh, kind of spread that that initial popularity um, to the, the commercial music um, scene. Um, and even though it doesn't sound like a blues track, like when you hear it, you definitely won't be like this, you know, sounds a little bit ra like kind of like ragtime. I, this is what I keep saying, but I feel like it that describes it pretty well and it, it fits his other repertoire pretty well. Um, and even more so than some of the other early blues um, songs that you might hear uh, just because of his uh, background. But it does follow a uh, 12 bar structure, which is, you know, a pretty basic. Uh, blue structure so you know at the end of the day you know it's a blues track but the key is like when he recorded it um you know the blues had already been around he's he's not um the creator of the blues at all but um it was just not in the uh spotlight or the uh, focus of commercial the commercial music industry or really pop culture at all um you know blues was very much, um, you know, stemming from uh, former slaves, former uh, or current sharecroppers, you know, a blue collar. It was definitely a very blue collar uh, music, uh, black blue collar music um, stemming from from the hardships and oppression. And it was, it was really an outlet and you could really hear that, that sort of grit, um, the grind, like you know, people overcoming uh, different struggles and hardships. And the uh, musical portion was, you know, definitely a little bit rudimentary and simple in the, in the beginning, uh, very heavily uh, guitar use, because that was one instrument that um, people were able to uh, get their hands on at the time. And so a lot of early blues was structured on the guitar, which... Um, you know, we'll talk about later, and I, I think I mentioned this before, but the, the guitar at the time was not really a, uh, you know, was not the a performance in instrument. Um, you know, it's it was an acoustic guitar, especially at, during those times. You know, it was obviously the sound projection is, is limited, so you can perform. You know, remember this is before uh, you really had any, a whole lot of amplifying ability. So you really wanted people who could naturally belt um, you know, acapella, I guess you could say, uh, and, 
have instruments that also could project and the guitar is just not necessarily that uh that type of instrument an acoustic guitar if you've been to you know any kind of concert usually has uh, some sort of um additional um a microphone or you know acoustic electrics now you can play and and uh and it'll project through a speaker so at that time you know that it's limited it's kind of a solo instrument um and you know that's how the blues are kind of crafted and it was kind of good timing because shortly later as we'll talk about you know electric um amplification electric recording um you know electric guitar all this kind of came into play and that really allowed um you know some of these blues players to take their songs to the next level but in the meantime you know we had these other well-trained musicians like wc handy who really started off who could play a bunch of instruments not necessarily focused on the blues but was able to hear it you know he was a black a black man you know he's going to frequent um he's going to have some ties to black community he's going to frequent areas that um you know it might be a a black establishment um something that uh, white musicians you know are probably not less likely to do i'll say that and so he had that exposure uh i think in the in the previous episode i mentioned the first time he came upon it he mentioned that uh you know this man was playing and i didn't specify a location because that's another thing you know to come upon a black musician playing the blues you know black people were not able to you know play in mainstream venues a lot of you know bars or places where you would play especially during those times you know it just it wouldn't be uncommon to see someone playing out in the square or playing maybe in um, some sort of black establishment. Um, you know, even the black church, the blues was not a, uh, you know, it was a outsider music. It was a rebel music. It was not seen as something, it was seen as a genre that was kind of, like I said, a little rough and gritty, but even more so to some people it was kind of seen as a music for low lives, you know, not, it was a, you know, it was a, a little bit of an underground genre, I guess. You know, one of the probably one of the original American underground genres, actually. And um, so you're not going to necessarily see this in places you frequent, in other words. But as a black man, you're going to have a higher uh, occurrence of encountering this another black musician, just because you got you know everything segregated. You're very limited into where you can go and where you can perform, what you can do, and so that that was. Um, I think one of the reasons that W.C. Handy was able to be exposed to that and add that to his music repertoire and bring that to the commercial um, recording industry. Um, so a little bit more about W.C. Handy's career. Um, he did some teaching. You know, he was like a, a well-trained musician, a band leader. And um, one thing about W.C. Handy is... Uh, as he was going through his career before he did this recording he did um he did perform in the minstrel shows which is pretty co controversial um, but that was one of the ways that he was able to kind of gain some success and get to this point where he was able to um, kind of put together bands um, and record commercially early on when you know a lot of black musicians weren't able to and um, if in case you're not familiar, minstrel shows are very are well known uh, for mostly well known for the black.
blackface performances that um, that occurred. Um, and it was initially really uh, white um, performers and performing in blackface um, and basically just uh, it, it, uh, it basically just mimicking black people in uh, not good ways, I think is the most brief summary um, I can give. But um, for more background, uh, the first famous character was Thomas D. Rice also known, his character was known as Jim Crow. Um, and of course, during those times, post, well, it started during slavery, but post-slavery, uh, you know, the Jim Crow laws um, took over the South and kind of became a post-slavery enslavement, um, really limiting um, what black people were able to do and essentially setting very low threshold for black people to be incarcerated and therefore being put to work again. Um, that's very, a brief, very brief summary. Definitely, uh, definitely look more into it. Um, but I'm trying to focus a little bit more on the, uh, the timeline vocab. So minstrel shows, um, like I said, started off with mostly white performance and blackface. Eventually black performers would also, um, join in because it really was the only way for, um, black entertainers to gain a living um, at that time and also you have to remember that in general the, the type of work options for black people were limited so when something opened you know you know it even if it seemed like a position where you are forfeiting some dignity um, you know maybe not representing your culture as you know you would want to um, those were those were opportunities that, you know, were hard to come by, and there were other positions I think that some people might view differently as losing dignity. They would rather they saw this as an opening or an opportunity to to do something that they liked. Maybe it was you know less not as difficult as some other positions. Um, in W. C. Handy's case, obviously this you know he was a trained musician, and so he was he felt in his position that. Either I'm going to continue as a black musician, being well trained, and probably never uh, reach any sort of commercial success, or any really be able to become profitable or successful uh, financially in in my industry. Just because who someone at some point, you know, someone is going to have to rise above um, and break through. And I think, at least in W. C. Handy's perspective, this was the best route to do it, and he was the one. You know, he had an opportunity to do that. Uh, so I think it's. It's definitely controversial. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, it, what is it worth it or is it not worth it? Because, you know, uh, if you, especially if you look into minstrel shows, um, it, it's pretty, uh, they're pretty, uh, there, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the stereotypes, um, that are still used today were black stereotypes that are still used today were developed during those times, um, but very exaggerated. And, you know, even if they weren't true, I think some of those were thrown out to the American um, culture so uh, heavily and so intensely that they kind of stuck. And uh, so, 
you know, take that for what it is. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, but very, uh, very, um, kind of startling. I think if, once you really get, get into it, especially the imagery and the, and some of the music and songs that were performed at the time. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, Bamboozled by Spike Lee. I think that's like a really good summary of what minstrel, the essence of what minstrel shows were, even though that's not really, it's not really a period piece, but it, it is, you know, essentially it is about minstrel shows and uh, kind of that sacrifice. And it does address the sacrifice because they're, they're black performers and kind of, I mean, it really is contrasting that time to the modern industry and like how, how far we come in, in a lot of ways, I think is, is the essence of the movie, but it does kind of also put out that uh, dilemma that I think W.C. Handy was facing, which is, you know, for some people, it, it's, it was worthwhile to um, make that kind of sacrifice, I guess, to, to forward, you know, move, move people forward and hopefully get, hopefully the next generation does not have to uh, do this, this type of uh, performance. But minstrel shows were actually the first uh, purely American form of theater um followed by vaudeville um i actually don't know if vaudeville is purely american i guess is it but i know minstrel shows were but and i know vaudeville came came next that'll be have to be something that gets looked up or perhaps you know someone can add that note in comments or you know let me know um but yeah, there's all different kinds of skits, different kind of performance. It was kind of circusy, I think, you know, personally, just because everything was so exaggerated. But it was very popular, especially in the 1840s. Um, and it, and uh, you know, it it really didn't get that much criticism until it kind of faded um, into the 20th century. Uh, I know Frederick Douglass was one of the few people to really come out and say, uh, you know, this is, this is not okay. Um, and just to, you know, note how absurd and, you know, uh, crazy all this kind of was, but, but, uh, there's a little bit of information on the website on Mistral Shows. Um, I think that kind of covers it. I, I think it was, a lot of it was just relevant because of WC Handy and, you know, that's kind of how he got his start. Um, that's also how Bessie Smith, um, who I don't cover in the timeline, but is a major um, blues figure, and she also had gotten her start in in minstrel shows. There's a there's quite a few um, individuals who got their start in minstrel shows slash vaudeville, and even in vaudeville, there are still some minstrel like performances, blackface performances. And um, it's 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 an interesting period time period to look at because if you go through, if you go through it like there's you know you'll see magazine covers like Ebony Jet, um, the other other black um, media at the time magazine popular magazine type media and you go through it uh, through the years and it's interesting how that it was portrayed because it wasn't not really um, it wasn't really heavily you know frowned upon per se or even criticized um 
as I guess heavily racist, like not even in comparison. People will definitely recognize it, but when you look at the content and you look at the criticism, you know, even into into the later stages, and especially, you know, it's kind of surprising coming from some of the the black media outlets. Uh, you know, it was kind of uh, it was kind of I guess accepted as kind of a stain on America's past entertainment industry, but it wasn't heavily criticized. So I mean, it's I, I, I won't dwell on it too much, but it is it is a bit interesting, and um, it and it really did not fully disappear until I think you can find you know some performances, maybe not in blackface but still you know it's still very it's still a minstrel show and i think the characters are so representative but i think they you know they've noted them into the 1970s i don't know about 1980s but uh something to look into if if this is interesting for whatever reason um and another another part of that um just to continue on i guess and cover some things while we're we're here is to talk about the great migration and this is something that will actually start now um, in these early periods Um, it started in 1910 um, and it really continued into the 1970s so it'll it'll be a topic that comes up again and because it's actually split sometimes split into two sections the first migration was between 1910 and uh, 1940, and it kind of bas- it basically kind of slowed during the Great Depression and for other reasons, and then it kind of picked up again in 19 uh, in the 1940 later 1940s, um, and continued until 1970. So I guess realistically, the the decline would have been in the 1930s and 40s, but then the increase happened in the 1940s and continued in 19 into the 1970s to try to clarify. But basically what that was, was it was just after the Civil War, um, there was that uh, Reconstruction era or period. Um, and during that period, you know, most black Americans lived in the South. 90% lived in the rural South. And you know, after obviously after the Civil War in the South, you know, slavery was over. Um, you know, uh, the ability ability to continue the economic structure in the South without slavery, and it was you know, it was there was obviously gonna have to be some major changes, and that's one reason that Jim Crow, of course, came along. Jim Crow laws came along, and tried to, I guess, in a lot of ways, preserve that. But regardless, there was going to be some major changes just because, you know, that was, you know, slave labor, you know, is going from slave labor to some sort of paid or alternative compensation is uh, like sharecropping and whatnot. Is, you know, even if some of those are not... uh, uh, situations or professions when I look for labor that is you know adequately paid for it's going to it's more than free is basically what what we're getting at so yeah there there conflicts rose up um, you know people are trying to get rights um, there's there's this uh, a lot of stuff was starting to stir up and and um, coming into the 1900s 
there was a lot of anti-black violence, um, whether it was through the KKK or other uh, anti-black groups or people. And so in addition to that, um, also just the need to um, get new types of work, labor, uh, move forward economically, a lot of uh, um, black Americans also moved north for that reason. But the whole migration was a shift from the rural south to um, the north, northern states and urban areas um, for those reasons. And by, um, let me see, I think I have some stats for this. It's also on the website, should be on the website, the description that I'm going off of right now. Um, so, so yeah, so by, by 1970, 50% of the black population now lived in the northern states. And 80% of those individuals lived in urban areas. So that's a big shift from 90% in the south rural to to uh, 80% in urban areas in the north. Um, you know, so I don't. So I guess I think that's actually a social switch that not that many people actually go through. Now that I think about it, but you know, if you can imagine, you know, living in a farm area your entire life and now living in an urban area um, for, you know, the rest of your life and, you know, as your family continues to de develop in that area. That's a, that's a really big shift. Um, and you can kind of see how all of a sudden you have uh, these musicians who are uh, blues guys who are playing uh, in rural sort of settings, develop this kind of rural music coming from a blue collar situation, hardship, post-slavery, um, you know, what the oppression through slavery, oppression through, through post-slavery, everything that's going along around that, uh, you know, racial persecution, um, and kind of bringing that whole, uh, a genre that was kind of built on that and bringing that into an urban setting. And, and then all of a sudden this, this, uh, this rural sort of crafted, you know, blues now is seen as an urban genre because that's when it really take off. Took off is when, um, is during the the Great Migration as people moved to some of these urban cities. That's where uh, a lot of the people that um, you're probably more familiar with than W. C. Handy or Mommy Smith. That's when a lot of those individuals, you know, as we got deeper into the migration that's when a lot of uh, those individuals started to surface and and we saw recordings and it also coincided with like i said electrical recording technology a lot of these technologies that really allowed people to a lot many people to be exposed to to these new types of music that were before kind of closed off in the south and rural areas you know that you don't rural areas not a whole lot of exposure it was kind of like it's, it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways, because it was isolated in rural areas and it was, you know, produced on plantations and uh, these share crop lands and just general rural areas, it was kind of, um, 
it was kind of created in uh, almost not, not in a vacuum, but um, you know I think the black culture that was you know d you know dominated the South, dominated the rural South was you know isolated and um, you know they were able to kind of craft something of their own without inf outside influences, and I think that's pretty rare. As far as when you look at modern music, I think um, you can argue that uh, country definitely uh, was that way. Um, I'm not a country expert, but from what I know, I'm, I think country was kind of put together in a s similar fashion. But, you know, that sort of being made in a vacuum and then kind of being moved into um, this other area and then you know, really, I think preserving its roots, but in a lot of ways, you know, exploding and a lot of influences added into it, added into it uh, through technology and some of the innovations that were going on at the time. And of course, you know, just the cultural shifts from going to rural to urban areas, especially during those times. Um, you know, I think it was, uh, it was, in, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And I think, you know, that essence of the blues kind of continues uh you know that that sort of that grit the oppression the the core um overcoming you know all these obstacles um you know bringing one culture here and you know sort of meld uh, adapting that culture to a new area you know despite all the hardships um maintaining you know it still contains some traditions from africa it still contains you know a lot of uh a lot of the oral tradition and uh, and some of the musical structure to some degree, um, and uh, it, I think that that sort of um, I, I don't want to say it, I guess blueprint um, that sort of core uh, essence of the blues is what makes up the blue lineage and why how that goes. From because uh, a lot of I mean from this point on you know you're really looking at as far as the black music genres you're you're looking at a lot of stuff that was created in urban centers, um, but I think when when you really look at each of these genres there's something different that stands out uh, in comparison to other modern music something that kind of just has that 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 blues energy that you know like I was saying that grit um, just you know a lot of I don't want to say soul because I feel like soul is a, uh, there is soul, but I don't want to, I'm sure when I, people say soul, it has a soul of the blues. They know, they know what I mean, but I kind of want to break it down further to, um, than to just say that. But that's kind of what I'm getting at is that essence. It kind of starts in the blues, you know, from that, that situation comes to an urban area and that, that essence kind of carries on within each uh within each genre of the following genres um despite them being made in an urban area there's sort of that uh that that's something extra that uniqueness um but i think that i'll you know we'll come back to that and i'll materialize um down the road because right now with uh, the music as we're talking about it at, at the moment um you know, W.C. Handy and the next individual, uh, Mommy Smith um, or Mammy Smith. I've, I've honestly only read her name. I've never heard it pronounced. 
out loud. I've just read, read it over time, so I don't actually know if it's mommy or mammy. I guess I've gone with mommy since I've said it so many times already. Um, but yeah, their their music is a little bit different because it was trying to push a genre that I don't think they even had a full hold on into um, into the commercial scene because they saw it as something that could be successful or the writers um, thought it as thought, thought it as something that could be um, successful commercially. It was new. It was interesting. It you know it brought um, it brought a different sort of flavor to what was music at this point. I think a lot of people saw that potential. Um, and may and not necessarily, uh, you know, what the potential that was people embraced later on, but just the the new sound kind of potential and what what that brought to the scene, I think, is primarily what people were trying to capitalize on at the time. Um, with that said, though, um, I would say, I will say that Mommy Smith and Perry Bradford is the one who wrote Crazy Blues. Um, the Crazy Blues was the first blues commercial hit um ever and mommy smith was the singer perry bradford was the writer and perry bradford at through this through that track and the other tracks they recorded um he was the first uh black manager to uh put together a all-black band and to record a record. So they were kind of doing two things that were hadn't been done at the time. Well, the record recording was one, and then of course it took a while for Crazy Blues to actually become a hit, but Crazy Blues was a hit and they were recording at that time. So it was kind of two, two uh, landmark, I guess, events happening there. Um, and this was in 1920. So once again, um, at this point, you know, there are other, there are other musicians who are performing um, at that point, uh, Ma Rainey was performing, who I think you probably, most people would consider her to be a more traditional blues singer. Um, and Bessie Smith was also out there. Um, trying to think of, uh, I mean, those are th- definitely by far the most popular individuals at the time. Um, but for Mommy Smith, she was the first to to record this hit. Um, that it sold seven hundred and ninety thousand copies in the first year, which is definitely you know a lot more than uh, anyone else at the time had sold as far as the blues. Um, I'm not honestly sure what they considered to be a hit at the time. You know what kind of threshold you had to cross during those days, but. Nonetheless, it was considered the the first blues hit, and it has a lot more. Um, it still has a sort of uh, ragtime. I was, and especially because mommy had a vaudeville vaudeville um, background, it had a sort of kind of theatrical, I guess, sound to it. Also, just her her vocal stylings. You can hear that in the music too, um, if you listen to it. Um, but I think what also made it a little bit more of a blues song is that. Perry Bradford, who wrote it, was a little bit more, um, he was a little bit more in touch, I guess, with what was going on with the black community and uh, some of the um, race issues, 
political issues that were going on on at the time. Um, the time the song was court, recorded in 1920, early 1920, and um, in 1919, um, as part of this migration, we had all these uh, individuals moving from the south to the north urban cities, and what was happening is there was there were conflicts um, with uh, black and white um, people starting to interact and people were felt that there were jobs were being taken. Um, you know, there was obviously already racial tension. Um, you know, in the North, it wasn't as formalized as in the South where you have Jim Crow laws. So I think, um, you know, the riots... Uh, protests in the South looked much differently than in the North. I think in the North, it was kind of like, you know, people felt, especially black people felt that uh, there was was, uh, hope. There was um, a level of right because black people had already successfully been working in the North to this point. And it felt like uh, there was pushback because of, you know, white um, people felt at the time there was some scarcity, um, people are taking jobs, um, and just overall, you know, of course there's just racist philosophies in general about intermingling and mixing and people sharing spaces, um, and obviously with all these people moving in the city, it was, you know, the city landscape was tra- changing dramatically. Long story short, there was a lot of riots in, uh, 1919, um, they referred it was from, I think, the winter, uh, from that winter into the fall, you know, basically was a lot of unrest, a lot of riots. This That 1919 summer is referred to as a red summer, um, specifically um, in Chicago and Washington, D.C., um, is where the most, uh, the most severe clashes took place. That's where... Uh, black people really fought back, and uh, there was uh, some some major clashes um, in those areas. Um, once again, something to look into. Um, I want to touch on these social and historical events um, just to give context, but I want to try to focus on the music as much as possible. I just think some of this stuff is you know real important as far as shaping uh, what was going on, shaping the music, um, shaping how the music was constructed, you know, how people were able to navigate uh, the recording industry and just how, you know, their personal life might might be um, impacting, you know, their musical decisions or how they're performing, where they're performing and, and the commercial success. And this is, and the Crazy Blues is a good example just because there were elements, you know, I'm, I don't, it's not clear, I don't think how conscious this was in Perry Bradford's uh, mind when he wrote it, but there are elements uh, in the song that are were seen as you know rebellious. Um, some people call it militant. I uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I would put it that far. Actually, you know I can uh, I'll let you decide to see if uh, how because how militant um, he is just from this excerpt, um, specifically in the Crazy Blues. Uh, people refer to a line that goes like it says get myself a gun and shoot myself a cop 
I ain't had nothing but bad news. Now I've got the crazy blues. Um, and this was also part of a commentary where they did talk about Perry Bradford as, as a sort of a militant, black militant at the time. Um, in a excerpt that was about Ma- Mommy Smith and a new literary literary history of America. Um, but just from hearing that, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, um, especially as an artist. But with that said, at that time, you know, this is 1920. Um, you know, you have limited examples of black artists who have that sort of um, position, you know, that a position where they are able to commercially record and put that content out to, you know, the greater public. Um, you don't you don't really hear many examples of even something like that uh, being put out there and being recorded and put in, and uh, recorded and sold or played or whatever for the American people. So, so that portion and just, um, and there were some other, a few other examples that really uh, created sort of a, um, a uh, stir that led to, especially people in the black community, hearing someone speak out and uh, something that really, they related to there was other songs that you know kind of touched on some black issues that were going on so hearing something like that coming from the commercial side of music uh definitely led to uh, more black um people buying uh the record than you would normally see someone buy a commercial record which was big because at that time um record players were just kind of uh getting out getting being sold commercially so and actually at that time you know being new technology people were you had black people and and anyone who was in that sort of class uh you you'd probably be looking at a lower middle class to middle class and under at the time you know there are very very few upper class um black americans at that time um comparatively so a lot of people were taking out you know, installment payments, you know, now we take installment payments out for a car. At the time, people were taking installment pay- installments out for their record player. And so people were doing that just to get their hands on uh, music like this. And then, of course, on the other side, uh, this, the, the, this, this, the blue sound and the, uh, the, the flow, the there was a, there was a general interest I think growing in the overall um, mainstream community, a general interest, increasing interest in the blues, and so that kind of is what compelled or propelled, sorry, the other side of of the song gaining commercial success. Um, Now, outside of that, um, that was that's like the main uh, contribution or main. Uh, that's the main um, reason that Mommy Smith was included in this timeline because of that kind of first, um, you know, also Perry Bradford and his contribution to 
to making the song a hit in the black community also um because the rest mommy smith overall did not really uh have a whole lot of uh commercial success in the blues um genre or just in the music genre commercial music genre in general um like i said earlier she was a vaudeville performer initially and that is a career that she continued to pursue um, before and after um, this her recording career. Uh, the this album was a hit, but that was the her big notoriety was for this and her performance. Um, her vocally, she she wasn't necessarily what people considered a fit for uh, the blues music genre. Just just kind of, you know, when you listen to her and you listen to like a Ma Rainey, you know, you there's definitely a contrast there. And I think you hear Ma Rainey and she uh, definitely uh, fits what you would think of as a blues singer a little bit more than Mommy Smith. But nonetheless, you know, there was success here. And, but she continued to perform. That's where she, she gained uh the the rest of her success um and she was interesting i guess so an interesting note about mommy smith uh being a vaudeville performer is as i had mentioned when i was talking about minstrel shows and vaudeville kind of following that and continuing that sort of minstrel uh minstrel uh, skits or aspects of minstrel shows and and that whole essence in vaudeville still, um, you know, vaudeville didn't necessarily, outside of those minstrel performances, did not necessarily mock um, black culture in that same way. But there was still a huge um, inequality and a huge um, unfair treatment of black actors versus white actors, just as far as the design and production of the show, because a lot of a lot of the the inspiration for a lot of um, the performances and dancing, um, a lot of that came from black culture. Um, some of the, the writers or the actresses would, you know, work alongside these black actors and um, learn different, you know, different singing styles, different dancing styles, and they would kind of use that in their performances and also take inspiration from just black cultural events as they saw it and kind of, you know, write it in a way that they want to portray them. And so just basically a lot of, uh, I guess, unfair borrowing, unfair use um, of, you know, just black culture was was um, heavily occurred in vaudeville. And Mommy Smith was somebody who was in a movement that was occurring at the time where black actors, you know, had gained a decent amount of success, enough success that some people were able to sort of uh, kind of divert or create their own black kind of vaudeville scene where you had black writers, black producers making um, black productions performances that reflected you know, black culture as they felt it should be um, kind of restoring some of the attrition some of the dances 
that uh, they felt were, you know, stolen or misused in other previously in vaudeville. And Mommy Smith was kind of involved with that. So it was kind of appropriate for her to be, you know, this voice on this track that kind of created some political stir, talking about Crazy Blues again, because, uh, you know, that she, in her own right, in the theater sector, uh, she was really um, part of something that was political and shaping uh, black theater careers. Um, and now she was impacting black music, black commercial music. Um, and so even though she comes from a theater rap rap background, I think that kind of uh, makes it appropriate for her to have recorded this this track um but so yeah in, in, interesting stuff she is uh she she is an interesting early performer um you know i'm not really uh i'm not really an expert in uh in black performance theater myself i mostly you know just know of her from her music performances and uh you know her early contribution to the to Black American music, so that is Mommy Smith. Um, so that covers the individuals I wanted to speak about on the website. Um, they have bios, both W. C. Handy and Mommy Smith, um, that you know are, are much more condensed. Uh, I wanted just to elaborate a little bit more on both of them, and the whole idea is to really show how uh, their lives. Uh, you know a little bit about their lives um, personal lives and how it shaped their musical career but also how you know that their the social and historical context shaped how you know they were able to perform what they performed uh, how it may have impacted their writing and the overall structure of the black music industry at the time you know they're just very key examples there are other performers at that time uh, who were playing the blues, but these, you know, these are firsts. And early in the timeline, I wanted to feature some of these early individuals because they're not, they're not necessarily people that uh, we've heard about. Even if you have, uh, if you're pretty well versed in um, some of the older, earlier blues artists, they're not necessarily someone you hear about. And then on top of that, you have someone like uh, W. C. Handy. So you have someone like W. C. Handy who. Maybe you've heard as the father of the blues, but now that you are able to find out a little bit more about it, you can find that it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, let me just see if there is any more terminology that we should should cover before moving on to end this episode. Um, but same, thanks for hanging in there. I know this one, this is a little bit more dense, and you know the topics are not exa exactly uh, positive, but. You know that's the essence of the blues. You know it came from a a, a dark place, um, but you know, as many blues players will tell you, um, even though the content, the lyrics of the blues might be sad or negative, it might reflect struggle. You know the blues is what makes them happy, and I think that's what makes uh, the listeners happy. Uh, is that the music is just it offers a sort of sense of relief and uh, you know overcoming a uh, struggle, even though. Uh, if you just read, if you probably if you probably read blues, 
if you only read blues lyrics every day, I see how, you know, that could be depressing. But if you put, when you put it all together, I think, um, you know, that's kind of the essence of the blues is, and that's, that's, you know, what we're, what I'm trying to get, get at is that, you know, came from a dark place. Um, but of course, you know, there are great West African traditions that were, were brought along. There are, you know, there's great triumph and, um, people overcoming, you know, very extreme hardship to get to a point where they're able to kind of create art again, perform that art, um, even if it's for a small audience. I think, you know, people can relate to the, just that ability to have that artistic freedom um, and then, you know, express express it to whatever audience and kind of pass it along. I feel like that is uh, fulfilling. And I think that uh, just to touch on a, a couple more terminology uh, items before I end this uh, episode. Um, there was a couple things on the timeline. There is uh, Tin Pan Alley. Um, I did not touch on that. And Tin Pan Alley is, or was, basically just an area of New York. Um, well, areas of New York, actually, because I... I they shifted um, to different blocks over the, over uh, a period of time, um, but Tin Pan Alley, generally speaking, you know, if you want to read about it a little bit more on the website, there's not a huge description there either. But generally speaking, it, it was an area where um, publishers were buying would buy uh, music from songwriters, so they could produce sheet music from that and sell it, and it was really just, uh, I guess, a glaring example of just where the music industry was and where it was headed. Um, just from a production standpoint, the reason it was a very large collection of publishers and you had just had a lot of songwriters and people coming through just trying to kind of produce whatever they can and sell it. It was not necessarily for quality. And so when people would refer to Tin Pan Alley later, um, you may or may have not heard of Tin Pan Alley. Um, there's some, it's definitely m- mentioned in songs down the road, especially in the 50s and 60s. Um, when people yeah, re- refer to Tin Pan Alley in hindsight, usually they're just talking about, you know, someone who was trying to, or someone who is trying to sell music more so for profit than quality is what that is. Um, let me see if there's anything else race record so race records were the first name for the genre of what I think what was down the road known known as R&B later to be known as R&B and hip hop all those genres you know that it's basically the same genre that has existed throughout music history it's just taken on many names and race record or race music was the first label um and that started in 1920s mommy smith uh would have been the first race record hit and wc handy and any you know all everyone else who recorded at at that time would have been it would have been uh called a race record uh, i'd say black a 
black musician recording that's intended for a black audience, more or less. Um, so basically encapsulated blues, gospel, um, R&B eventually, and basically, you know, basically all the genres that are on this timeline. Um, jazz may or may not depend on the record and the record company because, you know, it's not, the music industry is not necessarily just in, you know, uh, one uh, business called the music industry. It's a series of, you know, producers, recording labels, um, and then you have the people who put the content out, play the content, radios, um, performers. And so, um, depending on who was, what label it was, but who was recording it, um, it might be categorized differently. Of course, there's Billboard. I think Billboard used a race record up till 1940 or so. And then really that became everything basically shifted to R&B or something of that nature from, from that point on it was R&B and hip hop for a while there was black hot black something for you know for the billboard charts hot black hits or something I I have uh, I'll, I'll put something out at some point more about it because I think it is interesting because I think it's interesting how the label changed and changed because like race mixed music was no longer seen as socially acceptable uh, not necessarily because new genres of music were being invented. You know, a lot of you know, R&B already really existed by the time they shifted race records to R&B and, and, uh, and it kind of continued that way um, through until they changed it again. But in the meantime, you know, you had other genres being invented and they were just kind of being thrown under this label, which was no longer, no longer called race records. But when you think about it, you know, essentially all black music is just being categorized in this same label still. So it's, it's almost just, uh, it's almost semantics to some degree. And I find it interesting because it's kind of, it's kind of the same way today. Um, so it's, uh, something, something to discuss further, maybe another time because, um, you know, we're early on and more race records are going to be released at this point. Um, another note uh, for the terminology that I didn't cover that is posted in relation to this episode is songsters, which is not on the timeline. Um, songsters uh, are just good to know because songsters are musicians who were, um, they're basically the first uh, independent music acts before blues musicians were known as blues musicians. Um, so we're still talking about when people were in the rural areas, mostly, um, there were songsters, uh, who could, were white and black. Um, Charlie Patton, who we'll talk about later on is probably the most well-known, uh, songster to blues musician. Um, so songsters kind of embodied a, uh, a, pretty, a much wider music repertoire. However, you know, blues musicians ha would travel among these individuals with these individuals and perform um, songs, you know, on the road. And as uh, black Americans shifted towards urban areas, um, a, lot of, a lot of those uh, individuals became known as blues musicians as that, you know, genre evolved into the blues and 
some songsters actually, you know, either shifted more into ragtime. Some of them went towards more of a country vibe. You know, it was just because, you know, songsters was kind of an eclectic collection of uh, people who a lot of them play guitar, actually. And, you know, some of those individual small, smaller uh, acts where, you, you know, you're dependent on, a, a, you know, either a couple few instruments, essentially. Um, I think that covers it, though. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this first episode. Um, you know, hopefully uh, things continue to develop a little bit, uh, a little bit more smoothly. Um, but thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, as we move through, there's not really a set um, amount of time on the timeline that I'm going to cover. Um, I think usually before each episode or after, I guess at the end of the previous episode, I will elaborate a little bit um, I'll talk about what I believe I'll be covering in the next episode um, in this case uh, we will likely cover the electrical the invention of electrical recording technology along with Blind Willie Johnson, Charlie Patton who I just mentioned and Jack L. Cooper uh, will probably also cover the Shetland circuit at that time and likely the first commercial electric guitar. And that'll kind of get us through a lot of the the uh, culture and historical context that kind of dominates the early part of the timeline, um, setting the stage for you know, the following genres, following artists. Because um, after that, as you can see, it gets a little bit more uh, musician dense, which might be a little bit more interesting um, if you're here for the for your, if you're here for that part. Um, I mean, I enjoy both. I think diving into some of the events and historical context that led up to all of this is really interesting and something that really can become a discussion um, at another point and. Uh, and yeah so thanks for listening um, tune in next time um, at this point the next episode should come out within a week um, after that it looks like the episodes will be shifting to bi- bi-weekly but don't hold me to that yet um, everything is kind of just being developed right now uh, but I'll keep you all updated um, thanks for listening like Subscribe, uh, follow us on Instagram, blue lineage, blue underscore lineage, and Twitter, blue lineage. Um, there's not a whole lot to see on social media yet, but that will be the place to look um, to keep updated about any announcements or new articles, or you know, if you want to interact with me and the community, um, maybe suggestions, maybe some comments, uh, maybe trying to add some supplementary uh, information, materials. You know, I think. Uh, part of this is about sort of building on that oral tradition. Um, you know, there there are many communities that cover these genres individually. There are many communities that uh, cover some of these artists individually. There's regional um, um, sort of black American music or black music sort of um, historical, uh, I guess not 
projects, but uh, just sites or organizations, I guess you can say. Um, but I think the idea is, at least in this context, to kind of bring a lot of that together. And I think part of that is sort of kind of reviving um, some of some things that were really passed on orally um, within the family, within families, and some of the older generation, I think, still has a lot of the stories that um, are not yet written down, um, especially for some of these older um, events and older um, artists uh, that were not really well recorded. I think some of those stories are still out there, but also some of it is just in these uh, regional and and more local organizations and communities that have developed, and that you know it's not something that the greater world is uh, necessarily aware of. So, you know, I'm always open to getting more information about the stuff. Um, you know, adding that to you know our social media, adding that to episodes later. Um, you know, I'm I'm really open as far as all that goes. Uh, I just want to you know make sure that that kind of stuff gets out there and that we build out this blue lineage and um, really, I think, create a uh, very, uh, a very well laid out lineage or timeline of black American music as it applies to blues, R&B, funk, and hip hop. And that is the mission, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, tune in soon. Uh, like I said, the next episode should be up in within a week. Uh, bye for now.